We've been doing this for a while now. Self-isolating, social distancing, it seems forever ago since life was normal. But this is the new normal. You may find you've started a new routine. Waking up, having that morning coffee, mentally preparing for a day of video conferences from the living room. It's been a struggle, but a struggle we've faced together. And we're still here. It's important now more than ever to support each other, listen to each other, reach out to your mates. We'll get through this period of time as a unified community. During this time, we've been thrilled to bring you stories of people from all walks of life. People whose lives have been drastically impacted by COVID-19. Stories of struggle, stories of survival, stories of hope. Stories of life undercover. Welcome to episode 6 of the Undercover podcast, brought to you by journalism students of RMIT University. I'm your host, Jonathan McGrath, and this week it is my privilege to present a collection of stories on the theme of change. In some way, all our lives have changed this year. Our jobs have changed, our studies have changed, our lifestyles have changed. But what hasn't changed is our ability to adapt, as challenging as that may be. Bruce Lee, a master of adapting and a symbol of strength, once said, Empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. If you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, and it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. While he may have been talking about martial arts, we can certainly apply this quote to life today. We can fit whatever form we need to, adjust to any situation, and overcome any problems. Today, you'll hear a collection of stories about people whose lives have been changed by the pandemic. Workers from tourism towns, special needs carers, and even stories from students cooped up in dormitories and intrepid travellers living in vans. All these people have had to adapt in some way. This episode will delve into how life has changed for these individuals and how they're coping with it. Our first story today comes from Patrick Gabriel, who brings us a story about local businesses in Byron Bay, a normally bustling town that has been hit hard by lockdown laws. Here's Patrick. Right around the nation, there are locations in each state that come to mind straight away when we think about a domestic holiday. These places are seen as a beacon for those looking to relax, to explore, or to recharge their batteries. They are seen to some as the go-to spot when the heat begins to crawl into our nation, and they are the cosy nooks far away from the creeping chill of winter. A familiar face in this conversation is Byron Bay, known for its sweeping views, thriving surfing culture, and its ever-ready arts and music presence. With the current COVID-19 restrictions in place, leaving many of us at home and caught up in our own thoughts on the situation, a holiday is the last thing pretty much everyone is thinking about. With this, I began to wonder how these locations, and more specifically their residents, are experiencing life without the constant stream of tourists and the impact this has had on businesses. How has change struck them? It's a very happening place. Like every day something new is happening and there's always good weather and you're always at the This beach. is my brother Jake, who lives in Byron Bay. He's a bartender and waiter at one of the many pubs in the town. With the indefinite absence of the 2.2 million tourists who come through Byron each year, as well as the closure of much of the hospitality industry, which makes up 23% of employment, Jake is just one of many people who are currently out of a job. 
as soon as one of the restaurants shut down in Byron, they pretty much all just like domino affected. So everything shut down within like a week of each other. So there's a lot of people who just like lost all their work. It's usually like five or six days a week if you're in hospitality. I think that's what happened with most people here is that they all worked in hospitality because they're all traveling and they're all young and traveling around. So like a lot of them went back to Europe. I know a lot of people who went back already. And so I think like it's affected the town a lot, the population, at least like the rental situation and everything is kind of insane. If it was not already obvious that life had taken a strange turn for its residents, heading into the main strip of Byron Bay makes it plain. It's basically just a, a ghost town, but it's just like empty and deserted almost. Like there's no point really to go into town. I think I've only been into town like three times in a month because there's really no reason to go in, in there. But despite this bizarre scenario, residents are embracing a philosophy they are known around the nation for, community. I feel like it's become way more community-based and everyone's like looking out for each other. Everywhere I go like to get my food shopping, I just go to like the local food store, local petrol stations and like, you know, just looking out for the people in the community who need it more. This sentiment has been expressed by other locals too, who have headed online to keep the Byron Shire informed. So my name is Sophia Gardner and I live in the Byron Shire area up in northern New South Wales. Sophia, along with her friends Kat and Joe, started the Byron Shire online directory to support small business during this time. The Byron Shire online directory is a list of now over 200 local businesses who had to um, transform and adapt their business models because of the COVID-19 restrictions. And we've got um, everything from like grocery stores doing uh, delivery and um, home delivery and other kind of services. Um, we've got farms doing fruit and veggie boxes. We've got local coffee roasters now doing home deliveries. We've got bakeries. We've got um, also like a lot of health and wellbeing businesses. With word of the directory spreading quickly, Sophia and her friends have been able to organize many businesses into one user-friendly source of information. And then we could also see a need from the local community um, for a resource to find out what local businesses were doing and how they could support the local economy. We've had really lovely feedback from local businesses saying that, you know, it's been a big help to help spread the word. Sophia and the organisers were given support by the local council to help fund the not-for-profit initiative and couldn't be happier to support their local community through a time when there is so much uncertainty. While the future remains unclear regarding COVID-19 restrictions in the nation, Sophia believes this resource could have lasting effects on the Byron Shire. So we're investing a lot of time in it and we hope that after um, the restrictions lift there'll still be some use in it because I believe that a lot of businesses in the area will continue to um, operate with some of these online um, new ways. <laughs> Considering the massive effort of people such as Sophia, Kat and Joe, I think it's fair to say places like Byron have not been robbed of community spirit and my brother seems to agree. So it's like kind of still the same kind of lifestyle here that it was before, just with a lot less people. As for the tourism aspect, a topic that impacts all residents within Byron, the answers are not clear. Some people I've spoken to have said they they kind of like it like this, but other people I've spoken to have said, you know, the town won't survive without lots of tourism, domestic or international, it just needs something. And I think that's gonna happen either way. With the nation and the rest of the world now fairly deep into social isolating measures, it is certainly easy to feel like the cord of community and togetherness is beginning to fray. Yet, it is places like Byron Bay, 
and residents within the Shire who show us all how we can deal with such an immense shift. When a fairly small region has had their major source of income jeopardised, they have embraced each other and seem to be riding this wave with a certain flair only Byron is known for. They are yet another reminder that change, even if it comes from a global pandemic, can bring out the best of humanity. A great story there of a community sticking it out together. Byron Bay and many similar towns thrive off its visitors and tourism. It's heartbreaking to see these places struggle in times like these. Making any kind of major lifestyle change is scary, regardless of whether a global pandemic is in effect. One of the most extreme examples in recent years is hashtag vanlife. Once a playful hashtag, now a fully-fledged lifestyle movement endorsed by millennials worldwide. Let's say you've committed to this nomadic way of life. You've done the math, you've packed your entire life into a small but comfy van, and you're ready to hit the road and never look back. But what is it like when coronavirus restrictions kick in just as you're finally ready to make the move? April Austin finds out in our next story. The van life movement is about freedom. It's about home being anywhere you park your van. It's about escaping the structure and materialism of society as most of us know it. For Renee, who runs the Instagram account, the underscore perfect underscore van underscore plan, this was exactly why she craved giving van life a go. I stayed with uh, a couple of my mates in their vans and after I sort of got back home, I looked around the house and thought like, what is all of this stuff? Like, what's this couch and what's this dining room table? And it just sort of got me thinking and then I just sort of went, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get a van and I'm going to do the whole van thing. Giving up a typical lifestyle is scary enough. What Renee obviously didn't see coming was a global pandemic. Renee had been planning her move for a long time and everything was set for her to move into her van around the start of April, right when coronavirus restrictions were in full swing. So I was living in New South Wales at that time in the Northern River sort of area, and my van was being built up in Brisbane. And to actually even be able to go up and pick up my van was, you know, the logistics surrounding that was a little bit of a... Um, uh, a bit of a difficult time, I guess, to put it G-rated. Um you know, having to fill out the appropriate permits and whatnot because obviously the Queensland border is closed. Um, so it sort of all started before I even picked up the van, just trying to work out logistics of how I was even going to be able to pick the thing up legally. Renee picked up her van on the 13th of April. Legally, we were able to do it because it was classed as moving house. Um, so that was okay. Um, but I still felt really like, oh, God, I feel like I'm doing the wrong thing. <laughs> and sold her house on the 14th of April. There was no turning back now. But what was Renee going to do? Campsites and national parks, often the homes of the van life community, were closed everywhere to enforce social distancing and encourage people to stay home. Where was home going to be for Renee? I wanted to stealth camp as much as I possibly could, um, which means not going into caravan parks, not going into free campsites, um, more or less just sort of staying around the residential kind of areas, um, you know, out the front of my friend's house and whatnot. Um, and I was a little bit concerned about that. However, there's so many people doing that at the moment because a lot of the camping grounds are closed. So you're finding more and more people 
parking in the streets because they literally have nowhere to go. Everyone's doing the right thing. Like, um, you know, there's basically you drive to the beach and you stay there all day. Like people are just not moving. We're not sort of going out and about. Like we go for walks in the morning, but it's not like we're having van parties where we've got, you know, six van life people all, you know, in a circle around the bonfire or anything. Like we all are keeping our distance and, um, yeah, trying to do the right thing and be respectful of others as well. Okay. So coronavirus hasn't messed up her plans too much so far. But what about that community she mentioned? The van life is around a bonfire. Community is a huge part of van life. Australian Instagram account Van Life Diaries are world renowned for hosting van life gatherings to bring the community together. But now they can't happen. I was really um, at the start a little bit disappointed and a bit disheartened that that's the reason, one of the reasons why I wanted to do van life is because I really wanted to have that really nice sense of community and connection. And I was really bummed that, you know, that wasn't going to be the case. But to be honest, I am actually speaking from a distance um, to more people than I ever have. So my fears were irrelevant. You know, it's a bit of a talking point. I open up the back doors and everyone's like, oh my gosh, that's better than my house. <laughs> She's not kidding when she says her van is better than people's houses. A white interior with timber detailing, endless cupboards and drawers that disappear to take up next to no space, a dining table and two bench seats with navy blue cushions that morph into a double bed, a sleek black two-burner stovetop and oven with a child splashback. I have a completely flushing toilet, I have hot water in my shower, I've got a fridge, freezer, microwave, oven, stove, sink, bed, dining room table. Um, a little deck on the back so I designed it in a way that I literally have everything that I could possibly need so I want to be self-contained so that I didn't you know disrespect other people and go and shower in you know public places or whatever it might be I literally you shut the doors of a night time and you don't even know that anyone's in here. Some van lifers aren't so lucky with their setup. Many rely on gyms or public places for showers, toilet facilities and more. In the time of a pandemic, relying on public places for anything can not only put van lifers' health at risk, but can leave them totally without access to essential hygiene facilities. Luckily now, we seem to be getting closer to making it out the other side of the pandemic. How soon gatherings will come back, nobody knows. But Renee can't wait to properly get amongst the van life community. I just can't wait to actually be a part of one of the van life gatherings because it's all about music and community and sharing people's stories on, you know, why they why they chose van life because often people have got a really interesting story as to why they decided to live in a van. Their stories about how they survived a pandemic in their van will be just as interesting to hear. Amazing story there about people making their own communities, changing their own lives, and the interesting ways different people are affected by lockdown. Remember, you can check out more on our podcast on Twitter at under underscore podcast and on Instagram at undercover.podcast. If you have an interesting story or just a message you want to share, why not leave us a voicemail at 613-9018-5005. It's hard to tell what life will look like after the pandemic. How has industry been affected? Can the economy recover? 
In our next story, Stephen Ganavis speaks to economist Yaz Naji about what changes the economy has experienced during COVID-19 and his predictions on what's coming next for us. Here's Stephen with the story. The phrase, building a bridge to the other side, has been one of the key pillars of any Scott Morrison speech on the topic of COVID-19 and the economy. But what will the other side look like? Yaz Naji, a policy economist at a large consultancy firm, believes government stimulus will be a necessity and that national debt figures should not guide our response to the crisis. The big thing with government debt is, I think it's probably the biggest myth in modern day economics is that a lot of the voting voting population think that uh, household debt is the same as government debt. So we see a lot of campaigns being run on reducing the debt. But Yaz stresses that national or public sector debt is not the same arguing that the debt is far more secure because it is bought up by the public. Places like Japan have debt-to-GDP ratios far higher than 100%, and it's never really been a concern because it's owned by the Australian public. It's the same way as if you had your own debt and then you went into debt, but the whole of Australia bought your debt. Taking on additional public debt in providing stimulus may actually be the best way forward for Australia to emerge from the impending recession. As Emma Dawson wrote in a piece for The Guardian this April, after World War II... Australia's national debt reached 120% at its peak, but fiscal stimulus and a massive immigration program helped to create annual GDP growth, often between 5 and 8% for more than a decade, with annual wage rises routinely hovering around 10%. Growing the economy exponentially in this way helped to effectively shrink the size of our debt to pre-war levels in a decade. On the other hand, Yaz believes that austerity is not the solution to our problems. The best way to get rid of debt, and we saw this past the GFC, is to grow the economy. I think 2008 has really shown us that austerity doesn't work. It probably makes the recovery lower, uh, slower. Debt is not a problem so long as the economy keeps growing. And if we look at uh, Australia's history, pretty much from the beginning, the economy keeps growing. An increase to the New Start allowance, now rebranded as JobSeeker, has the potential to be a major economic stimulus both now and post-COVID. Yaz believes that not only should it remain, but that it may prove to be politically unpopular for the LNP to return it to its previous levels in September, as they outlined in March. The the problem is, even if Australia can go back to work, say social distancing regulations are reduced to the point where everybody can go back to work, the economy is still not going to be back to normal because part of the how Australia's economy works, we're very exposed to the global economy by design. Uh, the Hawke and Keating reforms in the 80s are partly why our economy is so prosperous. But if the US and the UK are still behind, we're still going to be struggling. So unemployment is not going to be back to normal levels by September. And I think the LNP will have problems with what used to be their base being on New Start Allowance or being on Job Seeker or Job Keeper or something like that, and probably not taking um, a cut. And I think uh, the permanent level of New Start should probably be this level or even higher. Yaz believes that other touted reforms, such as minimum wage increases or a universal basic income, will be less viable economic strategies to boost household incomes from a political perspective. He believes the LNP are more likely to favour direct investment and infrastructure projects that create jobs and help the economy return to full employment, which is an unemployment rate around 4 to 5%. One key issue, though, is that increasing the incomes of households might not create the immediate boost to the economy that stimulus would intend. Australian households carry an enormous debt burden of 124.9% of GDP, meaning that increasing household incomes might be funneled into servicing existing debts rather than spending into the economy. 
much of this debt is carried on the housing market. The fact that so much of Australia's money is tied up in housing is stopping stimulus and effective monetary and budgetary policy working. Um, to people, when people are given money, there's too much of a chance that they're going to put it into their mortgages. Um, it'll be very difficult for this government in particular to make any changes to that, given they basically ran on the platform of not changing it. I'd be very surprised if uh, future governments don't try and fix it. If this trend continues, it will be catastrophic for the economy. Yaz flagged negative gearing as a subsidy that will become increasingly difficult for the federal government to justify, and also suggested broader tax reform as a way to spread the tax burden more equitably, away from income and towards wealth. While one of the key talking points of the crisis has been that everything we know about life and the economy is going to fundamentally change in the aftermath of the pandemic, Yaz believes that our systems will largely remain the same. I lean mostly to most things won't change, but I think that line of reasoning is very convenient for people that want to make change. So you'll see it being leveraged on both sides of politics to push through agendas that they deem necessary. I think the biggest thing that this uh, will do, that this pandemic will do, is basically accelerate the decline slash growth of different types of industries. So the first thing I can think of is places like movie theaters. They were already on their way to transforming slash declining, and that will probably accelerate. Retail isn't dying, but it's been transforming, and COVID is going to make that happen even more. Um, so I'd, I'd, I think if I was to put a number on it, I'd say 99% of society will pretty much return back to normal, um, and it'll be those changes in, in uh, industries that are growing and declining. Stephen Ganava's reporting there. The changes to industry will definitely be something we'll all have to keep an eye on. We've had some terrific stories today from a broad range of people, all who've been directly affected by COVID-19. Our next story looks at healthcare, specifically special needs carers. COVID-19 has impacted healthcare across the board, from hospitals and their emergency services to specialist clinics, general practitioners and nursing homes. Although they don't fall under the typical healthcare umbrella, special needs carers play an invaluable role in people's lives. They are on the front line of their own, fighting a different battle and dealing with the various ways coronavirus has altered their lives. Ned O'Brien with the story. The Australian Bureau of Statistics lists 357,000 kids in Australia as having a disability intellectual, sensory, or otherwise. It equates to 7.76% of children within the country. Of the 357,000 kids, 97% of special needs children required assistance with any given task on a daily basis. To put this in perspective, 31 million days of cognitive care are required for people who were admitted to hospital in 2018. For the special needs community and their carers, it would equate to much more. Jordan Sandler is the founder of Care Now, having started the service at just 20 years of age. I'll let him tell you what it is. CareNow is an organisation that works with young people who are passionate, curious, or involved in the special needs community to work with them, to train them, to support them, to work as carers with children who have special needs. For Jordan, the idea was a long time in the making, developing over his years of experience. The idea sort of formulated kind of through my experience of working in the special needs community. Um, there wasn't really a day when I like came up with the idea of Care Now. It was kind of a big process over a long period of time. It wasn't a, an epiphany moment. Care Now began their work 10 months ago, jumping from one solitary employee to now 60 people, a majority of which are carers. 
they were experiencing phenomenal growth in the weeks leading up to COVID-19. But like most businesses in most industries, an invisible enemy put a halt to this. Hectic, definitely hectic. With the special needs community, sometimes things are just take a normal reaction and put it on steroids. Changes in routines are extra difficult to manage. In times which are uncertain, the Care Now team, from top to bottom, has to stick together. People did their absolute best to try and hold it together and really approached it rationally. People just realised, you know, if we lose our shit completely, then we're screwed. So we need to keep it together. Jordan mentioned how he had trouble adjusting to a new way of life, like many have struggled to do. But for special needs children, it is a tremendous change. For them, it's the minute changes, the subtleties. Structure is important to them. A normal weekday morning routine, which we don't think twice about, can be very reassuring for someone with special needs. Knowing what is happening, when it is happening, and what you'll be doing is especially important in their case. Having it changed instantaneously is a shock. Not only were the routines of children care now cared for altered, but the carers themselves had to adapt and find new ways to carry out their care. It's a tough period, you know, we've gone from carers who are active and dynamic, you know, maybe spending a couple hours in the house and then spending few hours doing you know activities outside or active things and now they've really had to change up their skill set and their routines because now it's all about facilitating at-home learning. With children and their carers being relegated to their homes it's limited what they have been able to do. Basically a lot of what we do is we do work in the home and then we do work out in the community. We're not doing any day outings, we're not going to any public venues, we're not doing indoor facilities where there's more you know too many people. The sense of family and community at Care Now are what they pride themselves on most. It is part of their integrity and it is what has held them together. So it's a family group, it's an intimate community and everyone's supporting each other. We have different support structures within the team where we like check in with each other, debrief with each other. Care Now prides itself on being a tight-knit community, from founder Jordan down to the newest 18-year-old carer to the families they support. This is what has held them together through these trying times. The dust has settled in a sense, hysteria is no more, and the curve is flattening. For Jordan, it's been a time and a chance to reflect. He is 21 years old, having started the service at 20, and he has now handled the global pandemic. Here's what he is most proud of out of all of this. I am more proud of what we've all accomplished as a team, more so than anything personally I can put to it. Like I said, Care Now is really a very team focused and we've all kind of come together. People have been there from the start. When I'm seeing the, the benefits we're able to give to families, you know, it definitely makes me really happy and really pr- proud. But I think that that, you know, nachos comes down to the team that I see in the families and what we've been able to create more so than kind of thinking, oh, this is something, you know, that I, I've done. Jordan Sandler's passion for the special needs community started from when he was 10 years old. From volunteering with his father, to doing it in high school, to spending a year in Israel. It culminated in Care Now, something he hopes to continue to grow. He has just one final message before he goes. Care isn't a generic thing. Um, and it's something that is deeply personal and you need to learn what disability is, how to manage disability, what different strategies and techniques to use, but that's not what being a carer all is. Being a carer is developing a personal relationship that's supportive, genuine, trustworthy, and honest. It's recognizing that 
someone telling you something with their voice is one language that they speak out of a thousand. And it can be everything from the way they're smiling that day, the way their eyes are resting, the way that they're, they're standing, the way they're making sounds, where they're directing you, how they're hunched. Everything conveys emotion, everything conveys sensitivity. And being a carer is about learning to tap into all of them. Some wonderful people there doing wonderful things. Living undercover has affected all of us, and it's important to remember those that have been working around the clock to care for others. For a lot of us, the last few months have been perhaps the greatest challenge we've ever known. But while many people have lost their jobs or are working from their homes, others are still out there, face to face with strangers and risking their health doing the same job they've been doing for months, maybe years. These essential workers could be considered the small town heroes of 2020, working to provide us the things that are critical to our lifestyles. Samantha Burgess spoke to a supermarket worker, part of a sector of workers who are paid the least in our community, but who are now the most exposed to COVID-19. You know, I guess customers kind of need a boxing bag and we can be that for them sometimes. The year 2020 has been a year with a new normal, with change occurring in almost every aspect of our lives. However, one consistent over the past few months is our need for groceries and other supplies. Those working to give them to us are the heroes we never really knew we needed. I managed to speak with a Year 11 student who works for the supermarket chain Coles. Amelia has been working at Coles as a casual worker for almost a year. Most days, she earns less than $20 an hour. Since the COVID-19 outbreak, she's been given over double, nearly triple her usual hours to help manage the influx of shoppers. But working right now may be coming at a cost. The fear of contracting COVID-19 is so real to me as I'm in contact with hundreds of people like every shift and I never know where they've been or who they've been in contact with, who their family members have been in contact with. And I honestly, I can't help but think whenever I serve a customer like are you going to be the one I contract coronavirus from? Essentially, it's an invisible virus until the symptoms show. So I really, I do, that plays on my mind a lot. Like when I get a customer, I do think in my back of my mind, like you could have coronavirus and I would have no idea. Due to all the panic surrounding the virus, Amelia has also seen an increase of anxiety within her personal life. So, for example, the other night I had a dream where I couldn't stop coughing and I was struggling to breathe because, obviously, I am thinking about coronavirus all the time. I feel like it will play on my mind more than the average person who would be staying inside. For high school students, like Amelia, who work casual or part-time jobs, the coronavirus pandemic means they not only have to adjust to an online education, but now also have to deal with a pandemic-raised public during their minimum wage shifts. The biggest surprise to me since this pandemic has kind of risen is how black and white people can be and how the situation really does bring out people's true colours. 90% of people are so lovely and like I'll get people randomly coming up to me and they'll just thank me for working, um, which I think is so nice. But then some people do do the sneaky little eye roll or they'll like make eye contact with their partner and kind of bulge, bulge their eyes a bit like when I tell them about the new rules and like that there's restrictions on how many products they can buy like as if I'm the one who came up with the rule and they'll act like annoyed at me when in actual fact I'm a 16 year old girl scanning food like I have no say over the rules but you know I guess customers kind of need a boxing bag 
and we can be that for them sometimes. Working on the front lines during the outbreak means Amelia has been privy to some of the astonishing behaviours displayed by some people. Something else that has really surprised me is how everyone turned against each other during the toilet paper panic buying period. You'd just think that people would be a little less selfish sometimes and that they'd think about other people and not push each other over to go and get the toilet paper. I had a lady come in a few weeks ago and she had a massive coughing fit. She was in self-serve and she could have had asthma, you never know, but she was not covering her mouth or anything. Um, she was just kind of coughing essentially onto the self-serve machine. And then she needed um, one of the girls in self-serve, she needed some help because the machine like malfunctioned. And when she went over to help her, she did not move aside. She didn't give her a space. So I felt bad for the poor girl. Even through the challenging conditions, they could be considered some of the lucky ones, as many casual workers lost their jobs and didn't qualify for the JobKeeper payments. While she's seen examples of others disregarding health regulations and sanitary practices, she's also seen acts of goodwill that give her hope for the future. Throughout all this madness, most people who have come through my register have been really lovely, which gives me faith in humanity because, yeah, most people are so nice and so understanding. There have been plenty of heartwarming moments, which I'm so blessed to see on most of my shifts. One in particular was I remember a younger woman who had to buy toilet paper for her kids. I don't think she had much left and she had little toddlers, I think. She gave an elderly lady like her rolls of toilet paper and she let her go in front of her at the service desk. And I just love how people are showing care for the elderly because if they were forgotten during this time, it would be so sad and heartbreaking to see. When she took the job almost a year ago, Amelia didn't know she would be putting herself on the front line of a worldwide health crisis. But the reality today is she, like many other essential workers, are some of the most vulnerable. Obviously, it's a difficult time for, I'm sure, a lot of essential workers putting kind of their health on the line a bit. At the end of the day, though, all essential workers are in the same boat. So I'm just one of millions speaking. But I think my thoughts towards the situation are kind of mutual for other essential workers, you know, I think we all kind of are going through the same thing right now, the same like thought processes. As I said, I'm so blessed to have a job and an education as well. So I'm not taking it for granted, but I definitely have struggled to find a bit of time for like myself and to fit in homework and everything. But yeah, I am so grateful. So I'm not complaining on my end. It could be time to reevaluate how we treat those who work long hours on their feet, stacking shelves, scanning groceries making and delivering food and other essential services, not to mention the health professionals who are to be praised for their efforts during this time. Unfortunately, it's the people who work these jobs who often get treated the worst for acting on rules put in place by others. For less than $20 an hour, their efforts to work through social distancing have helped all of us. So let's start showing them some more appreciation. That was Samantha Burgess with a great insight to our essential workers, especially young people working in supermarkets. Not only have they experienced changes in their line of work, but in the attitudes of their customers. As Samantha said, let's not forget to show these workers the appreciation and respect they fully deserve. Our final story for this episode of the Undercover Podcast focuses on how life has changed for society's most marginalised people during the pandemic. These people often require periodic medical treatment. Some of these individuals already find it difficult to visit their doctor, so what happens when doctors are instructed to prioritise patients that don't include them? Isabella Krebert finds out. 
As of now, a fair portion of 2020 has been spent in lockdown. Part of the issues our society faces at this time is keeping our physical and mental health in a good state. But when doctors are closing doors and social distancing measures are imposed, how can you hope to book an appointment and in a timely manner? 22-year-old Lucius is severely affected by this. He defines himself as gender diverse and recently had top surgery, which means he requires follow-up medical attention periodically. Lucius lives with chronic pain and chronic fatigue. That means he feels more tired and lethargic than the average person, as well as in persistent pain. He hardly goes outside. His chronic diagnosis means neither of these conditions can be cured, so he needs specialised attention to help him manage his symptoms. I was actually meant to be working with, uh, with my doctor for like seeing a pain specialist and getting, um, getting a couple of tests run, all of that, and that has gone out the window. Instead of getting the bed rest he needed following surgery, Lucius was feeling tense. As a coping mechanism, he throws himself into writing and creating commissioned fan art and fan fiction, but he's not feeling satisfied with his current situation. Regarding my hormones, that has been an incredible source of stress for me um, because without that, like my body basically starts collapsing inside out. And, you know, I can wait maybe a week past the, uh, the due date for that stuff, but any further than that, and yeah, it's bad. And with, with the lockdown and all the COVID stuff going on, uh, people like me really get thrown under the bus when it comes to medical care. It's, it makes you feel like you don't matter. In order to maintain progress, Lucius needs his hormones every three months. This time around, he was due for early April. Because of his pain and fatigue, it is always a trek to get what he needs in a timely manner, but this time, matters were worse. Being under my own self-imposed isolation, uh, you sort of lose track of time. Uh, Time didn't exist for me, so I forgot that, you know, Easter holidays were a thing. Um, I was terribly stressed about all sorts of um, other matters that was happening in March. I got my appointment set up for the 17th, right? I went, and the receptionist looked really surprised to see me, and he was like, "Uh, mate, what are you doing here? I go, "Uh, I'm going to get my injection. I went to the pharmacy, and I've got my things, and he goes, yeah, nah, mate. Um, Find appointments only. And this, this guy, he can probably see, like, the light draining from my eyes, um, me astral projecting in absolute panic, because how am I supposed to get medication into my body over the phone? Like, bruh, that's not how it works. Patients were supposed to receive text messages to explain this, but Lucius was having phone problems and couldn't have known. At this point, he was already sorely in need of his overdue injection. His exhaustion made it arduous to travel via public transport. Thankfully, Lucius managed to get his medication, but if you're unfamiliar, let him explain why hormones are important. I don't feel like like an actual living being. I just feel like a mess, like something that shouldn't exist. So yeah, my hormones are important for me to get. This incident made him lose some faith in the medical system. As a young, gender-diverse person, he knows minorities are less catered for in life. You know, I have to say, when, when it seems uh, things go sideways in the world at large, it's society's most vulnerable people who get screwed over the worst. Um, lockdown is the basically the worst time to be disadvantaged, I guess, to be unemployed or to be disabled or to be lacking in, in, in support, you know, to be living with 
family that doesn't really want you there. Um, it's hard. Uh, my parents, um, they're dipping into their savings uh, to keep paying the rent. Our landlord is merciless. Uh, he does not care. Lucius had resolved to get his health in order this year, but it's impossible at the moment when no doctors are available for him to consult. It's an environment that, you know, it's not mine. It's just, it, it feels like a prison, honestly, to me. Um, and if I got my own place, if I had a stable job, if I could live as my own person without having to babysit other people and worry so much about, you know, being, I don't know, abandoned for asserting myself or standing up for myself, you know, I, I, th- I think that would, would lead me to a good, meaningful life, you know. He doesn't like relying on other people and systems to sustain him. Being burnt by trusting the wrong people in the past would do that to anyone. But he currently lacks that choice more than most people his age. Lucius wants freedom and independence. The only issue is, it's far away. But once this stuff is over, I have, I have plans for what I'll do once this is over, because uh, forced isolation has really made me take a hard look at the things in my life that need to change. Like, the, the, way I, the way I live, which is already very detached from society, a society I don't belong in. But yeah, I, I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing what I've done in isolation, escaping into things that aren't real. You know, I can't do that forever. Ideally, I'd like to make connections that aren't just people on the internet. I want to um, start working on this bullshit chronic illness. Um, I, I want to start, like, seeing what it's like to walk around, you know, feel the sun. While Lucius might have struggled to get his hormones, hope prevails. On Friday the 8th of May, the government announced their three-step plan to ease lockdown restrictions. Each state will follow the guidelines at their own pace and discretion, but it does inspire hope that what used to be accessible before can be once again. That way, people like Lucius, like you, your family and friends, can have their needs fulfilled and have a better quality of life. After all, everyone needs some love, some care and medicine once in a while. Isabella Krebert there with a touching story. Hopefully, normal life will resume soon. Thank you for listening to Episode 6 of the Undercover Podcast. A big thanks to our reporters, Patrick Gabriel, Lily Graydon, April Austin, Stephen Ganavis, Ned O'Brien, Samantha Burgess, and Isabella Krebert. This episode was brought to you by our producers, Eddie Lim and Stephen Ganavis, and our executive producers, Tito Ambio and Janik Rogers. You can follow our podcast on Twitter at under underscore podcast and on Facebook at Undercover the Podcast. If you have a story of life undercover or want to reach out, send us a voicemail at 613-9018-5005. I've been your host, Jonathan McGrath, and remember, we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. While the world may have changed for us, we still have the power to change the world. Until next time, stay safe, and we hope to have you back for our next episode.